seated. If you have a Bible with you, or if you picked one up from the back, then um, you can open to John, John's Gospel, chapter 4. We'll look at verses 1 through 26 this morning, and the text is also printed in the bulletin. So we're starting a new series on worship, and uh, again, um, as I said during the announcements, I'm excited. Um, curious, uh, I'm actually going to ask you to raise your hands. <laughs> um, yeah, when I ask you, this is a survey, it's very informal. <clears throat> how many of you, how many of you grew up in churches with a developed liturgy, a high church liturgy like this one? How many of you grew up in churches like that? There's like eight or so. Um, how, how many, um, then on the other hand, maybe your first experience with a liturgy like ours came as, um, as you were an adult later? How many? That's, that's me, so okay, that's more. So um, the first thing that people often notice about our service when they come and visit uh, for the first time, it, they say this, is, uh, wow, that, that liturgy is just, uh, it's really interesting, right? And they say either um, something like, oh, it seems very Catholic, you know, and maybe they had a bad experience, and, um, and so maybe they're not quite sure whether they'd enjoy it or not, or uh, maybe the experience is somewhat actually more like uh, mine and my wife's when we first started uh, attending in town. That was the, kind of the, our first regular experience with a church with high liturgy uh, back in 2003. And uh, right away we noticed, yeah, we'd been in churches before where they had this kind of a structure where they had this back and forth uh, readings and prayers and um, things like this, but, um, but it actually seemed vibrant. It actually seemed alive, you know, not, not cold and dead. And so uh, that was kind of our first experience. And actually a lot of people uh, when they visit our church are, are intrigued and they express appreciation um, for the liturgy. And in fact, I think that there's um, maybe not a large-scale return, but there's some kind of return to a high church liturgy that you see in the broader church. Um, uh, I think even especially, strangely enough, in our denomination, not, not every um, PCA church has a developed liturgy like this, and uh, increasingly more are doing it that way. And uh, adopting some of those elements. And people like it, right? People like it. Um, I bet most of us don't know why we like it. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you like it and you've never thought about why you like it. <laughs> um, maybe you've, you've thought about it, but may, maybe we don't even appreciate the right things about it. It just seems different, uh, so we like it. I, I don't know. We, so, we need to consider worship. Right? We need to give some attention to it, meditate on it, study it. We need to devote some energy to figuring out what God's word says about worship. And, um, because we need to know what God thinks about worship. We need to know what the Bible says about it because we were made for worship. It's the primary reason for our existence as human beings. It's our lifelong pursuit. It's our eternal destiny. It forms our identity. The church is the worshiping community on earth. Um, Isaiah 43, uh, verse 7, God says explicitly that he created us for his glory. Um, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says that we're to do everything that we do for the glory of God. 
and uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, our church's uh, constitutional document, um, kind of summarizes the scriptural teachings, asks the question, what's the chief end of man? What's the purpose, the main ultimate purpose for humanity? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So, um, so it's important. We should probably give some thought to it. And John Frame says this. I think you find this in the um, beginning of the bulletin. There's a few quotes printed for you. But in um, John Frame's quote, he says, In the Bible, we read of God's going to enormous trouble over many centuries, culminating in the sacrifice of his own son to redeem a people to worship him. Redemption is the means Worship is the goal. In one sense, worship is the whole point of everything. It's the whole point of everything. Um, all of our lives are supposed to be spent in worship. The scriptures are pretty clear. Uh, everything we do, right? So we do the glory of God. But the ultimate expression of worship in this world is, um, is, is what we're doing right now. It's corporate worship on Sunday morning. That is the ultimate expression of worship. Uh, of what we were made for. Uh, Karl Barth, I should have put this in the beginning of the bulletin too, because it's an excellent quote. The church service, maybe you don't think this way, the church service is the most important, momentous, and majestic thing which can possibly take place on earth. So, we're going to spend some time over the next few months examining what constitutes biblical worship, corporate worship, thinking about why we do what we do, especially here on uh, Sunday mornings. It'll extend out and learn how to worship God better with your, um, with your whole week, with everything you do, but, uh, but especially in our Sunday gatherings, how, um, how we're supposed to be shaped by this vision for worship and, and then how that carries itself out uh, in the rest of our lives. Um, so this week and next week are going to be sort of introductory um, we're going to talk about ideas that, um, that we hope would permeate everything that we do when we consider worship. So we'll have these introductory sermons, and then what we learn about then is supposed to influence the rest of the series and the rest of our thoughts on worship. And, and pretty simply, what we're going to do this week is study that core, kind of the vertical aspect of, um, of worship, where it's, it's us and God, right? It's... it's Godward, it's God-centered, this vertical aspect of our relationship with God and worship. And then next week, we're going to examine the, the horizontal aspect of it. It's, it's us, each other, uh, with, with each other uh, together. So, and then after that, we'll focus in more than on the, the specific elements of our liturgy. So if you opened um, uh, your, your bulletin and you went and saw those big, bold, black headers, you know, we're going to kind of just walk through those and um, and talk about how uh, those ideas are shaped by God's word in light of what we learn in these first two weeks. So, um, so let me pray and then we'll read John chapter four. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that um, you have spoken your word in many ways at many times, but chiefly through your Son, who is the Word. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit who filled uh, the prophets and the apostles to uh, record your Word for us so that we now have it in front of us. And it is 
not only a challenge to us, it is a comfort to us. And, and it instructs us, and it heals us, and it transforms us when your Spirit's doing his work in our hearts. And so we pray that that would be true this morning now, that you would change our minds and our hearts and, and everything we do to bring you glory, because that's uh, what you deserve, and that's why you've made us. We pray that you would shape us into the likeness of your Son, who perfectly glorifies you, O Father. We pray in his name. Amen. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, it was about noon. And a woman came, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Uh, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. So, obviously, a ton going on in that passage. I can't talk about the whole passage. I can't even really talk about everything that the passage says about worship. Um, 
we are going to talk about three things in particular that I think will help us uh, shape our thoughts uh, in overarching ways about worship. And they're, they're right here in this passage. They're all over the Bible, but um, Jesus talks about them plainly here. So the three things I want to talk about this morning are, first, the importance of revelation, uh, that, that Christian worship uh, is revealed worship. We, we are told how God wants us to worship. So the importance of revelation in our worship. Secondly, um, that our worship is triune, it's Trinitarian. And then, uh, and I'll explain what that means. But thirdly, that uh, our worship is incarnational, it's Christ-centered, it's cross-centered. Right? So the importance of revelation, uh, the Trinitarian nature of our worship, and the um, Christ-centered, Christocentric focus of our worship. So first, uh, that Christians worship according to Revelation. Basically, it's very simply, we don't make this up on our own. Right? What we do with all of our lives, but especially what we do here on uh, Sunday mornings, we didn't just come up with that. Right? God tells us where, uh, what our worship must look like. And in theology, uh, we call this the regulative principle of worship, that God regulates worship by his commands, by his word. So in Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, he says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. So he's basically saying you, you worship wrongly, right? Um, you worship wrongly, we worship rightly because we know. Right? Because of what we know, because God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures, because this is from the Jews. He's revealed how it is that we're supposed to worship him, and we must worship him according to the truth, Jesus says, right? Um, so David Peterson says that throughout the Bible, acceptable worship means approaching or engaging with God on the terms that he proposes and in the manner that he makes possible. So we should let the Bible tell us what worship is. And Interestingly enough, it, uh, the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek. And both of these languages use two words um, to talk about worship primarily. And those words basically boil, they boil down to one of them means service and one of them means like adoration, um, uh, paying homage. Right? So, so service, you've got things that we do, and then you've got the way that we feel about God, the way that we think about God, uh, the way that our hearts are connected to God in the things that we do, right? So, um, so basically you've got what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it that the Bible uh, reveals to us. And um, if you... Um, want to turn back there, I'll read the Old Testament reading again from Leviticus chapter 10. And this is pretty serious stuff, right? It says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each, uh, these, these were, um, this was the institution of the priesthood, right? Aaron was the, the first of the priests and, and, um, and his sons then after him would be these, these uh, priests that were set apart and they had all kinds of restrictions and regulations and, and rules, uh, put on the way that they were supposed to dress, the way they were supposed to prepare for worship, exactly the things that they were supposed to do in worship. And it says that each of these guys, uh, Nadab and Abihu, took his censer, which is the, 
the thing that you, um, you put incense in and it burns and it is representative of the prayers of the people going up to God, this, this beautiful aroma, this pleasing aroma that's supposed to be uh, representative of our prayers. Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And his sons spontaneously combusted because of the wrath of God. And he held his peace. God had given elaborate, explicit instructions how he was to be worshipped. He pointed out details, the way that the, the, um, the cloth hanging in the tabernacle was supposed to be decorated, um, the way that things were supposed to be carved, the woods and materials that they were supposed to be made of, and the colors they were supposed to be. He gave them even recipes for anointing oils, recipes for incense um, that were only supposed to be used for worship and that they were unlike anything else that you would use in uh, your common experience. He had given the, these instructions, and here they, di they didn't do these things. They used their own incense. Right? And the problem that that's representative of, which is universal in our world, is that we make up our own spirituality. We make up our own approach to God. Rather than listen to his scriptures about um, how we're to engage him, and about the things that are supposed to characterize our worship in our lives and on Sunday mornings, we make up our own religions. Um, sometimes we mix them together, right? Um, but they come from our own imagination. And we may not spontaneously combust, um, but ultimately if we do that, if, if, if our um, pursuit of God is characterized by just making up our own way, our own religion, our own worship, then ultimately we are going to die apart from God's favor. And um, if we don't listen to him on how he's to be worshipped, then fire is what awaits all of us. Right? And the other problem that we see uh, is, and maybe this hits closer to home for many of us, is, is religious hypocrisy in worship. Right? Um, it's not just making up our own stuff, it's, it's actually doing the stuff that we're supposed to do, right? Going to the scriptures and seeing, oh yeah, this is how worship is supposed to look, um, but doing that from a heart that is far from God. As, you know, God uh, condemns in Isaiah 29, this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. John Piper says that um, true worship must include inward feelings that reflect the worth of God's glory. And when worship is reduced to disinterested duty, just going through the motions, it ceases to be worship, for worship is a feast. And um, it's a feast of our souls, it's a feast of our hearts that fill up then the services that we perform. Um, and they're supposed to do that in accordance with God's word. Amos chapter 5, which we looked at actually, I think it was last summer, um, God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. You, the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. 
Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You're doing all the right things, right? But from a heart that is far from me, and um, what was going on in, in Israel in that time, um, Hughes Oliphant Old was a commentator on this, says mistreatment of the poor, militarism, the luxury of the rich, bribery in the courts, sexual promiscuity, high interest rates, and oppressive taxes revealed the religious hypocrisy of the kingdom of Israel. For the, the Christian, holiness of life and sincerity of worship must go together. So um, that characterizes us too frequently. We'll argue over the uh, color of the paint in the sanctuary, what, uh, what's on the floor, whether it's carpet or tile. Uh, we'll argue over things like songs and the order of our worship and how we take communion. We'll, we'll argue over those things long before we'll give attention to the weightier matters of the law, which Jesus says are justice and mercy and faithfulness. These ought to be the kinds of attitudes that are present in our hearts in worship, uh, <clears throat> especially in our attitude toward God himself. Worship is about our hearts. We're to come to worship to give our hearts, to give ourselves fully, not just a couple hours a week, not just a couple hundred bucks a month. We're to give ourselves fully. The Word of God calls us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, our whole selves, right? Made wholly available to God, wholly devoted in heart, soul, mind, and strength. David in Psalm 51, which is a very famous psalm, says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So God demands nothing less than our hearts in genuine worship, Complete affection for him, complete submission to him. He has said that clearly in his word. And so in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Which Nadab and Abihu experienced immediately. So we need to do the right things in our service. And we need to do them from the right heart, right? with our affections, with our desires, with our devotion and allegiance, sincerity. Right? <clears throat> and that is impossible for us apart from the revelation of, of the gospel. The revelation of the gospel. So we need revelation. We need God's disclosure of what worship is supposed to look like. And we need the gospel to be able to do that from our hearts and not just pay him lip service. Be changed from the inside out. So the chief aspects of worship that we're going to talk about from this text, from John 4, and in, in fact the defining characteristics of Christian worship as we see it in all of Scripture, are that God has revealed himself as Trinity for our worship, and that the Son of God has become incarnate for us according to the gospel. 
in order to um, make us able to worship. Right? So I'm not going to get um, too much today into the details of the order of our service or the liturgy. We do believe the Bible gives us instructions for worship on that level of specificity. Um, but I think that the things that we do in worship um, can be traced ultimately back to who God is, who he has revealed himself to be, especially as a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the second main point, Christian worship is Trinitarian. Basically, almost an assumption that um, all of us would have of uh, any form of religious worship, any religion, is that people worship particular gods, right? The God defines the religion, right? Uh, who that God is defines the religion, defines worship, and, and there is no God like our God who has revealed himself to be one God in three persons, from eternity, three persons sharing equally in one substance, one essence, one nature, communing in love and joy and glory forever. Three persons in one God. And um, that's in our text. In John 4, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, The hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So uh, spirit and truth here doesn't just mean really sincerely in the right way, right? It doesn't just mean that. Um, though, of course, that's obviously important in biblical Christian worship, as we've already discussed, right? Um, it, it's a Trinitarian statement. We worship the Father in spirit and truth. Um, John Frame says, worship in spirit and truth is Trinitarian worship, worship that is aware of the distinct work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in our salvation. So the truth, in Jesus' statement here, um, the truth is a reference to God's revelation. The ultimate revelation of God being the second person of the Trinity, God himself coming into our world to reveal God to us, the Son of God, the Word of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Right. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we come to the Father only through him. Jesus is the true tabernacle. He's the true temple. He's the holy mountain. He's Jacob's ladder. He's the meeting place between heaven and earth. And we come through him by faith. We come through him into communion with the Father. And there's no other way to come to God for our relationship and for our worship. And uh, the Apostle John says in, in 1 John, uh, he says, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And the Son of God gives us living water, gives us his Spirit, the Spirit regenerates us. He brings us new life. He confirms us in the truth. He unites us to Christ, who is the truth for our communion with God. And again, um, Hughes Old says that worship is the work of the Holy Spirit. Christian worship is inspired by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit, purified by the Spirit, and bears the fruit of the Spirit. But Christian worship is Spirit-filled doesn't just mean energetic and charismatic. 
Christian worship is spirit-filled, spirit-saturated. He's called the spirit of the sun, which means that as he is in us, in our relationship to God, in our worship of God by grace, we stand in the son's place. His father is our father. We are invited and caught up by the spirit of the son into the very place of the son in the relationships of the eternal trinity. So just let that blow your mind. Think about it, right? Um, God is love. God is communion in being and he brings you in and lets you enjoy his divine love as a free gift of his grace. There could be no higher privilege imaginable. It's the only way to truly be in fellowship with God and absolutely changes everything about the way that we think about God. Changes everything about the way that uh, we think about who we are as created in God's image. The way we think about how to relate to him. The way we th think about what eternity will be like with him and it, it changes everything about the way that we think about how we're to worship him. Right. So Jesus says in verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Because God is who he is, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Because God is a trinity, we must worship him according to the trinity in a trinitarian way. And so J.B. Torrance um, uh, there's another quote in the beginning of the bulletin there. He says, worship is the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. The doctrine of the Trinity is the grammar of worship and prayer. So worship is a gift that we're given by God's grace. If it weren't for God's grace in revealing himself and reconciling us to himself through the sacrifice of his own son, then we would not be able to worship him rightly. <clears throat> and it's participating in the incarnate son's communion with the father, which is relational language. It's conversational language, right? Participating in communion. It's this back and forth. It's this dialogue. And that is why biblical worship has a dialogical aspect to it. That's why our liturgy, our order of our service, seems so conversational, because it is conversational. God speaks to us, and we respond to him. God calls us to worship him, and we respond with a song of praise, and we pray for his special presence. And then God calls us to confess our sins, and we do so. God assures us of the forgiveness that we find in Christ, and we respond with thankfulness and offering our gifts and ourselves to him for his service. God speaks to us in his word and we offer our prayers and our praises to him and on it goes all the way through because worship is a conversation because God is a being in conversation because God is a trinity. And that's why the pinnacle of our worship service is communion because it's what we're made for because it's our privilege by his grace it's our eternal destiny we enjoy our communion with the Father through the Son in the Spirit because God is a being in communion because God is a trinity. And so we pray at the table to the Father. We lift our hearts to heaven by the Spirit to where Jesus is seated at God's right hand. He's, he's for us. He's in our place. 
And Jesus' place at the Father's side is our place at the Father's side. The triune nature of God compels us to abandon ourselves to him in praise. Our worship shouldn't be self-conscious, self-absorbed. It should be self-forgetful. We shouldn't always worry about what others are thinking of us if they were to look at us during worship. We should lift our voices, we should lift our hands to God with abandon because our focus being entirely on God, um, we're absorbed with him. We're absorbed with Christ because God is supremely other-oriented because God is a trinity. And our hearts and minds should be captured by him in adoration and homage, paying homage to him because the Father loves and adores and honors the Son, and the Son loves and adores and honors the Father. And our lives and our energy and our resources should be devoted to him in service because the Father and the Son give themselves to each other entirely. Right. So worship should be, um, it should be critical to our whole life because life itself, true life, eternal life, abundant life, consists in knowing God the Father and, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, right? Because God's life consists in mutually knowing and being known because God is a trinity. And public corporate worship together should be the feature presentation of our lives because togetherness is divine because God is a trinity. And that's why next week when we look to considering each other in worship, it is not at all in conflict with God-centeredness in worship. Considering one another in worship is not in conflict with considering God to be utterly God-centered in worship. God-centeredness in worship, when your God is a trinity, naturally flows into and necessitates the consideration of others. So uh, Christian worship is Trinitarian, and Christian worship is incarnational. All of this, all our ability to truly and rightly worship God, our reconcili uh, reconciliation to him, our communion with him, it comes to us through the incarnation of the Son of God. Right? When the second person of the Trinity became also a man for us. Um, we have access to God, to the divine life of communion, because God became a man in or order to redeem our humanity and to catch us up into the the fellowship of the Holy Spirit of the Trinity. So even though to God we're like the Samaritan woman, a sinner, an outcast, a rebel, untouchable, unlovely, by the grace of Jesus Christ through the incarnation we find streams of living water that assuage our spiritual thirst. And now God is always accessible to us through his son. Jesus says that the hour is coming and is now here. And that's a reference to himself. It's especially a reference in uh, John's gospel. We talk about the hour. The hour is coming. It's the hour of his death. It's the hour of the atonement. It's the hour of his sacrifice on the cross for us to reconcile us to God. And so he's talking about himself, especially he's talking about um, himself as our mediator the one who brings us into relationship with God. And Julian of Norwich, a uh, 14th century English um, mystic, said this, when I saw the cross, I saw the Trinity. 
where Jesus appears, the blessed Trinity is understood. The Trinity filled my heart full of the greatest joy, and I understood that it will be so in heaven without end. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we see God in him and that we're reconciled to God in him. And John Frame, again, um, I read this earlier, in the Bible we read of God's going to enormous trouble over many centuries, culminating in the sacrifice of his own son to redeem a people to worship him. He says, redemption is the means and worship is the goal. So we are redeemed in order to worship. The cross happened so that we could worship. Our chief end is fulfilled in glorifying and enjoying God forever, which we do through the grace of Jesus Christ alone. So our services are Christ-centered, Christocentric. The proclamation of the gospel of our reconciliation to God, the proclamation of the gospel of our salvation is central. It permeates the whole thing. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So our liturgy, our order, is a recapitulation. It's a reenactment. It's a a remembrance, a drama, a story of our redemption. We're called into God's presence. We need to be purified for worship through the forgiveness of our sins. We're reminded of his love. We enjoy his love and communion And then we're sent out into the world with his blessing. A lot more can be said about how the story and the purpose of the gospel shape everything that we do in worship. But we'll talk more about those things in coming weeks. But but here's your homework. Um, Since the study of worship should be um, the central pursuit in your life. Go home this week and read Isaiah 6. Uh, The encounter that Isaiah has with God in, um, in his vision in, in the heavenly temple forms a pattern for our order of worship. So um, go and read that, meditate on that, Isaiah 6. Also, um, for extra credit maybe, <laughs> um, read through the book of Revelation with his visions of heavenly worship and see the, the, the exalted, joyful nature of the destiny of those who belong to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Right. Give yourself, um, not just to the study of worship, but give yourself to worship. Present yourselves as living sacrifices to God. Do everything you do to the glory of God. And especially... Come to church so that we can do that together, so we can glorify and enjoy God together. That's what he wants. That's what you're made for, being made in his image. And that is what you were redeemed for. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess that it is often far from our minds, far from the chief affection of our hearts, to glorify you in the way that you deserve, to worship you in the way that you've told us to. 
to consider you as triune and all the ramifications of that in our lives and in our worship, to consider the gospel of your incarnate Son, who alone enables us to enter your presence and to worship you rightly. Um, we are weak in being able to remember these things, and we are sinful often in not wanting to remember these things. We pray that you would strengthen us and overcome our sin by your grace, that you would keep our minds and our hearts fixed on Christ, seated above at your right hand. We pray this um, now and uh, through this week, that all of our lives would be characterized by worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.